It's good to be in the Lord's house. I am thrilled to be here. I'd like you to take the Word of God and open it up to John chapter 8 this morning as we continue through our series in John. We're talking about uh, trouble at the Temple Mount is what we've been talking about. Temple talks, what's going on there, and they're after Jesus, and they continue uh, trying to lay a trap for him. In our passage today, we are going to be talking about no condemnation from John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. As you can every week, you can pick up these if you'd like. It's just a study guide, and uh, you can pick it up right back there on that center table. Uh, If not, you can look on your uh, electronic device, and you can find it there on the church app and other places, and you can follow along. I did find out, uh, Denise uh, sent, me a, sent me an email and said, Pastor Phil, I made an uh-oh. And I said, what's that? She says, just want you to know that everybody's, most everybody in the church already got your uh, sermon this week through the, uh, on an email. And she says, I sent it out to everybody. I was only supposed to send it out to the teachers. Week to week, I, I handwrite everything. And uh, so the teachers have something that, that they can look at before they go into their classes. She said, I pushed the wrong button. So uh, I got to thinking about that, and I said, that's really cool. So they're going to, if they got it and they read it, then they're going to hear it, and we're going to have a double whammy this morning on uh, being able to get it. So let's do that. I want us to just start off this morning by reading the passage. So if we, you would stand with me, we're going to look at John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. The words are up on the screen. Again, if you're new, we do this. We welcome you, but we do this in honor of the Word of God and also just to see it and hear it clearly, we're going to read together. So beginning now, let's start at the word, but Jesus, and let's begin. But Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery and they had set her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I want to tell you this morning, that's some of the sweetest words that could ever have been uttered on this planet is for Jesus to say to somebody who is absolutely guilty Neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. You see, with Jesus, there is no condemnation. Romans says it again, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I'm going to talk about that with you this morning. Would you bow for prayer? Father, I thank you for the passage of scripture that we have read. I thank you for the group that is gathered. I thank you for your presence among us. Lord, I pray that once again, as in the first hour, that you would... 
anoint me in order to be able to speak the truth from your word, Lord, in the power of the Spirit, with the love of God flowing forth. I pray for everyone here today, Lord. I pray that the application could be done by the Spirit himself as each of us considers this theme, no condemnation. Add your blessing to the preaching and teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. You can be seated. A man by the name of Julius Wellhausen lived from 1844 to 1918. He is the father of what is known as higher textual criticism. He wrote things called the documentary hypothesis, and he was a tremendous, I'm going to say theologian in the sense of he knew what was written, but he was an unbeliever. Uh, He did not believe in Jesus Christ as the only son of God who died for the sins of the world, and he doubted the scriptures. He began this school of higher criticism in which they uh, call into question the authors of the scriptures and the timing of the writing. For instance, he didn't think Moses wrote anything, thought Jeremiah was an imposter, he never wrote anything, and many others. He just, uh, he decided that what really happened were that the Jews later on, after they had had the temple fall a couple of times, they decided in order to keep their Jewishness alive, no matter where the people were scattered around the world, they just needed this compilation of histories and stories in order to have something to rally around. And so he believed in that. You say, why did you bring up Julius Wellhausen this morning? Because in your Bibles, uh, some of your Bibles, we're going to have a footnote or a bracket around it that says something like, uh, the most ancient copies of the most ancient manuscripts do not include this passage of scripture. They say the same thing about something in Mark chapter 16, also in 1 John chapter 2, other places in the Bible. I just want to go on record this morning to say that uh, I believe in the entire word of God, and uh, this Bible has been preached by the likes of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and C.H. Spurgeon and many, many others as the word of God. God has chosen to bless it, and uh, I don't know that 2,000 years after the fact uh, that we're any closer to knowing exactly what's there. I believe the Bible, the Word of God is purified seven times. Uh, as the t- Psalms tell us, I believe the Word of God is settled in heaven. Psalm 119 verse 89, and I think that when we start messing with it and start coming at a later date and saying, well, this shouldn't be there, that shouldn't be there, the question is, when will it stop? I'm just going to preach this as the Word of God if that's all right. Can I get an amen on that? All right, so we're going to look now at this passage of scripture, and uh, I want you to listen to what I have to share with you. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been duped or tricked? You ever had somebody pull the wool over on you, and, um, and uh, you, you, you didn't know you were tricked until it was all over? Could you just raise your hand up? Yep, I think we've all been there at one time. I read about an antique dealer, and I get this. I read about an antique dealer who spotted a valuable antique bowl in a hardware store. He was just out walking along and he saw it in the window. Although this bowl was worth thousands of dollars, it was being used to feed the owner's cat. And I might add, what a waste for that bowl. But anyway, uh, not wanting to alert the owner to the value, this clever antique dealer said, well, I'd like to buy that cat. I'll give you $20 for him. The owner of the, of the hardware store said, no, that's not enough. And he kept going. Finally, he said, I'll give you $100 for that cat. And the guy said, sold. You've got, you've got yourself a cat. And he said, the antique dealer said, well, I assume that the, the bowl that holds his water and food, you're going to send that with the cat. And the owner said, oh, no, that's my lucky bowl. I've sold 34 cats this week with that bowl. So you had two people 
<laughs> Two people trying to, trying to dupe the other person. Our story today involves trickery and entrapment. Uh, these religious leaders of the Jews are trying to trick Jesus. They, uh, they, in the process, they use and abuse a woman. It's a ploy to get at Jesus and uh, it's very important that we understand what is going on. So don't forget now, uh, these are events happening on the temple grounds, in the complex of the temple. Uh, Jesus, uh, midweek of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, he has showed up and begun to teach. He would teach all day after the first time when he turned over the money-changing things. And he left and he comes back each day and he teaches. And so on one of those days, he is teaching again and we have this story. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the people, they are losing influence very, very quickly among the people. They had this power scheme set up that everything was working for their benefit and everybody was basically cowing down and cowering in front of them as the leaders. But now this Jesus has come along and he's doing bona fide miracles. His prodigies are without doubt, signs they call them. And in addition to that, even the soldiers sent to arrest him come away saying, nobody ever spoke like this man. Nobody ever spoke like this man speaks. He was just irrefutable. His, the, the, the power and authority with which he spoke, uh, he was winning a tremendous, tremendous following. And so they had to do something about it. Now, as we get into this story, we need to understand that in the meat of the story, we need to clarify something that Jesus is going to say, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. But we have to clarify this does not mean that Jesus is soft on sin. That sin is okay, it's just not a big deal, we make mistakes, everybody makes mistakes, we're all human, so let's just don't worry about it. No, that's not what this story is, uh, is saying. Number two, it is not always wrong for people to uh, try to point out in other people's lives where they are living contradictory to their testimony. Uh, it is not always wrong for believers especially Believers to step up and say, hey, the way you're living, the attitude with which you are acting, the, the, the style of life that you're having is, boy, you are doing damage to yourself, to your family, and to the cause of Christ. You need to stop it. You need to change. You need to repent. Somebody say, well, boy, I just really have a hard time with that. Well, let me read the word of God to you then. Uh, the Bible says in James chapter 5, verse 19, you might want to scratch this down there somewhere, James 5, 19. First word in this verse says, brethren. Who do you think he's talking to if he says brethren? He's talking to fellow believers. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he that turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sin. One of the most loving things we can do is, according to Galatians 6.1, with humility and with tenderness, uh, we can approach that person that we love saying, hey, George, Bill, or Tom, uh, Sue, or Sally, listen, how you're living, what you're doing, the attitude with which you're presenting is, boy, it's doing you damage. It's hurting your testimony. It's hurting the cause of Christ. And boy, you know, if Jesus is in you, he can help you overcome this. And, and so that's the right thing to do. The subject of our story today involves a particular sin. It involves the sin of adultery. The Bible speaks very clearly about this subject. I know that in our world today, adultery or marital unfaithfulness, uh, it is being mocked, the idea when we say that that is a sin. 
In fact, what God calls adultery, our generation calls an affair, and what God says endangers the home is considered entertainment. We put it on big screens and watch it. We have strayed a long way from Bible righteousness. Now, let me just pull over and say, in this era of gender dysphoria, in this era of LGBTQ and all those other letters that I told you last fall, uh, in, in, in this era... Sometimes we forget that that is not a permission slip for some of these older forms of sexual sin. In other words, adultery is still sinful and fornication and extramarital sex and premarital sex and pornographic mental sex and all these, all of these things are sin and God doesn't give a permission slip to anybody and he doesn't give a permission slip to the church of God. And I am sad to report that there is a general attitude that uh, we're just never supposed to preach about sin, especially this one. We're supposed to have a positive, encouraging, loving message always and we never bring up sin. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Until we face sin, there really is no salvation. Because what are we being saved from if we're not being saved from our sins? And so this is so very important for us to hear. Here's a few Bible verses that have not changed. Exodus 20, 14, you shall not commit adultery. Proverbs 6, 32, the man who commits adultery is an utter fool. For he destroys his own soul, wounds his wounds and constant disgrace are his lot. His shame will never be erased. Matthew 5, 27, you have heard it said by them, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Fast forward to 2023, and what that means is men, that means that uh, images on a computer or on a cell phone or in a book, images that induce you to think wrongly toward another person, a woman, think wrongly, and to have lust in your heart you are guilty, according to Jesus, of adultery. Sin is not something that Jesus is soft on. Adultery and fornication are grievous. As with all sexual sins, they carry special consequences. You say, what do you mean? Well, they have a more enduring nature in this life than any other. Now, there's no permission slip for greed, for covetousness, for envy, for jealousy, for hate, you name it. Theft, there's no permission slip. However, 1 Corinthians 6.15 says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside of his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own soul, against his own body. There are ramifications that are that are very difficult. Now, let's not be careful to read something into the story that's not there. That is that God really doesn't frown on sexual sins. He does. But at the same time, all sin, the transgression of God's law, whether it's greed or covetousness or jealousy or envy or lust or whatever that thing is, all of it is the transgression of the law. And therefore, we break one law and we're lawbreakers. And I just thank God that Jesus died for all sin. And praise God, he died for my sin. How many of you name the name of Jesus as your Savior? You're a believer. Would you just raise your hand? That I just want to tell you, he died for your sins. And thank God, our sins are gone. Isn't that wonderful? Praise the Lord. If we've confessed and come to him in faith, he has taken those sins away. Now, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders were losing control of their religious power. 
their recognized political position in the Roman Empire was going to be eroded. There were Herodians among them. That means they were of the party of Herod. They were both religious and political, and they were working with Herod. And so uh, Jesus was becoming more and more popular. His words were carrying more weight. They had to do something to stop it. So what did they do? Well, they did this. Many other things they did, but they did this in this passage. What do these religious type people, what do they do? Well, one, write it down, they use tricks, verse three and four. The leaders were using the woman's sin as an opportunity to trick Jesus and to destroy his credibility. That's what they were trying to do, trap him, trick him. So if Jesus were to say this, if Jesus were to say that the woman should not be stoned, they'd say, well, look at him, he breaks the law of Moses. If he were to say, well, take those stones you got in your hand, go ahead and throw them, let's kill this woman, then they would report him to the Romans because the Jews had no permission to carry out their own capital punishment or executions, and so they would catch him. So they thought they had him. Uh, They uh, used these tricks. Well, Satan's using tricks today, too. He used them in the Garden of Eden. He enticed Eve. He said, look, God's holding out on you. Uh, there's a whole lot more. These prohibitions concerning the tree of life, he knows that it's good and it's pleasurable. It's healthy for you. It's going to be intellectually stimulating. For him to put that out of bounds just means he's holding out his best for you. We live in a day where Satan's doing the same thing. For modern America to be told something is off limits or out of bounds is just out of the question. We live at a time when anybody is ever told no don't do that or don't do this or this is wrong. We live at a time where there's an automatic rebellion toward that. You know what the Bible says about the last days? The Bible says that in the last days, people are going to be despisers of authority. Any authority. It doesn't matter who the authority, parent, parental authority, governmental authority, authority in the schoolhouse. No authority anywhere. No authority in the neighborhood. They're going to be despisers of authority. And so just like uh, they did, we go against God, nature, common sense to insist that things like homosexual relationships, extramarital relationships, and anything goes mentality is not only okay, but it's our right and we should celebrate it. Um, You know, beginning with Eve, she was tricked and it didn't work out well for her or any of humanity that followed her. And I'll tell you what, when Satan tricks us, it doesn't work out for us either. Now, we're hearing all kinds of information today about safe sex. We've got to think about this and make sure that we're doing these things. We don't need to worry about monogamous sex. We just need to have safe sex. And so I just have a question. When was sex ever supposed to be dangerous? If a pastor or a parent or a leader of any kind suggests that the safest sex is monogamous, a monogamous relationship with one partner to whom you are committed for life, You're just simply laughed out of the room. But speaking of this safe sex thing, I want to tell you something. Abstinence before marriage and faithfulness in marriage are still 100% effective. The little phrase in verse 3 that is very important to our study this morning says, the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. She was caught and sin always does catch us, but they had, they had set this up. They were using tricks. She was caught. Now sin always catches us. Sometimes people actually think they've gotten away with something that God didn't see it and nothing's ever going to be, uh, they're not going to be held accountable. But God says this, Proverbs fifteen three: the eyes of the Lord are everywhere 
He's keeping watch on the wicked and the good. God sees everything. And then how about Job 34, 21? His eyes are on the ways of man. He sees their every step. Uh, there's no such thing with getting away with a secret sin. It's, it's, it's endless how many of us think that, you know, I can do this or do that or get away with this. Nobody sees me. It's just between me and myself and it doesn't bother anybody else. God is always watching. Listen to this. Hebrews 4, 13, nothing. And all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before his eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now listen to that last phrase. Before the eyes of him, speaking of God, before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That phrase, to whom we must give an account, is the reason that agnosticism and atheism exists in the world today. Because the best way to not have to give an account to a creator God who is the Lord of all the earth, the best way is to assume and deny that he even exists in the first place. If there is no God, I'll never have to give an account to anybody but myself. If I doubt or don't know about his existence and it's really doubtful, then I don't have to give an account to anybody. I am the, I am my own judge and I can do anything that I want to. Well, the problem is there is a God and everyone must give an account and I could read verses the rest of the day about how he sees and knows everything. So why is there so much trickery? Why, why does Satan use so much trickery? Well, there's a threefold attack. I've given it to you before. We have an external enemy, the world, the world around us. Second, uh, second, uh, first John 2.15, the world around us is set up to entice us to evil. We have an internal enemy, self inbred desires. Uh, we have an evil, we have an evil bent. He said, I don't even believe that. Well, the Bible says when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted by his own evil desire. He is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown gives birth to death. So I have an external enemy, uh, the world, and I've got an internal enemy. My own sinful nature continually pushes me toward evil. And then, of course, we have, I call him the infernal enemy, and that is the devil and Satan. He's doing everything he can to trick us, and he'll use every ploy that he can. First Peter 5, 8 be self-controlled and alert because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. The devil wants to eat us up. He wants to do everything he can to destroy us. Uh, have an external, internal, and infernal enemy. So these people were using tricks, and then they did something else. They laid a trap. Look at verse number five. Lay traps. Now, Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned. You see what he's doing? Now, are you a law keeper or are you a law breaker? If you're going to keep the law, you got a stoner. Moses in the law said that she needs to be stoned. What do you say? Trying to put Jesus in a situation. This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. And so they were trying to lay traps, and they laid a trap here. Uh, this, 
was near the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. Everybody was sleeping in these booths and tent-like brush arbors to commemorate the Passover. And uh, I, I don't want you to get it in your mind, and we don't need to think that the Pharisees sneaked around peeking in everybody's brush arbor to see what was going on and finally found adultery going on and captured them and brought them. That's not what happened. They laid a trap for this lady. Now, she was guilty. She fell in the trap, but the trap was really not, was not for her. The trap was for Jesus. If we can just get him to break the law of Moses, nobody will listen to him. If we can just get him to break the law of the Romans, they'll carry him away and put him in jail. We won't have to deal with him. They were just positive they had this figured out. They were gonna catch him in his words. Well, God created language, so good luck in catching him in his words. They didn't. You know what? Their motive was unjust. They were not on a justice campaign, but, but let's don't get that in our mind that these religious leaders were trying to clean up, that, clean up everything going on in Jerusalem. In fact, I can take you to a place in the Old Testament that I won't chase this rabbit this morning, but I can take you to a place in the Old Testament where God accused the priest of loving the sin of the people and that they wanted to sin more and more because the more they sinned and they brought their offerings, the better they ate. They weren't running a justice campaign. They didn't care one whit about stopping the adultery or fornication or anything else. They just wanted to stop letting Jesus take over. They saw their power leaving. Something else, their method was unfair. It was unscriptural. They weren't, they, they were throwing the Bible at Jesus saying Moses said this and Moses said that, but they, they weren't even getting it right or quoting it right. Listen to Leviticus chapter twenty. And verse number 10, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. That's what they were saying. Hey, we got to kill this adulteress. Well, wait a minute. Something, something's missing here. Where's the man? All they had was the woman. If you're going to quote the law of Moses, then where's the woman or where's the man? Deuteronomy 22, 22, if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man and he who slept with her and the woman must die. Now, folks, they didn't have to sneak around and find somebody committing adultery. They planned the whole thing. It was a plot. No doubt they broke the law themselves by not bringing the man involved because one of them standing there was the man. Mm, it was a setup. Their question that they asked him was also unfounded, unfair method. Unfounded question. Moses said to Stoner, but what do you say? It wasn't about justice. It was about discrediting and destroying Jesus. And folks, there are still people like that today. As you deal in life and talk to people about the Lord, every once in a while you'll run across somebody like this, somebody who's just full of questions about God and for God. Uh, it's the kind of people who they've already made up their minds where God is concerned, they're against him. Maybe they feel that their lifestyle is threatened by him, by his rules. Maybe they feel their misfortune in life represents a betrayal by God's promises. And so whatever reason, they are against God. And the kind of questions they have are not questions seeking an answer, but accusatory questions trying to bring God down. And so they hunt for apparent contradictions. They suggest things like these questions. Well, if he's a God of love, why is there a hell? Or if he's the God of justice, why do the innocent suffer? Now, in and of themselves, those are legitimate questions to ask when asked from a pure heart. And there are answers to, that will satisfy a sincere and reasonable seeker. But again, those who hate God are not concerned with true answers to their questions. Their motive is to trap and discredit him. That's what they were doing with Jesus. And today, 
Many times we run into people we maybe want to share Christ with. Well, if he's so great, how come there's this? And how come, that, how come 9-11? How come this earthquake over there in Syria and Turkey and all that? I mean, you know, and on and on. These people do something else. Uh, they they uh, use tricks. They set traps and then they throw stones. Look at number five again. Now Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned. So you just get the picture. Here's a woman. They captured her. It goes on to say that they put her in the middle. And all these men are around her. They've all, I mean, I just picture this. Here she is, just weeping. She's caught. She knows it. She's in adultery, and she's just weeping. She's down on the ground and just waiting for the stones to start falling. And they've all got these stones in their hands, and they're ready to stone her. So they're ready to throw stones. She was, it wasn't the woman they were worried about anyway. She was collateral damage, so to speak. But the hard-hearted person should consider that people that live in glass houses should not throw stones. There they stand, ready to judge, stones in hands. They have Jesus, they think, on the horns of a dilemma. He's between a rock and a hard place. So in the thickness of that pregnant moment with a weeping woman that was no doubt guilty, there was a raucous mob ready to kill her. What does Jesus do? Look at the passage in verse number six. It said, but Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Interesting. The, I had at the top of the sermon, Exodus chapter 31, 18, when the Lord finished speaking to Moses on the Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of stone, tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. John 8, 6, but Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. And so the God of Mount Sinai, where the earth shook and the sirens blew and the smoke was going and the hand of God, maybe the fiery point of his hand was carving the Ten Commandments on those stone tablets and Moses is standing back, white, white hot presence of God and he's just standing there and he sees all of this and the finger of God wrote those things out. And here we have the New Testament, Jesus standing in the temple and he bows down on the temple ground and and in the dust, and I'm going to talk about that, he writes with his finger. <laughs> he was very familiar with the law of God, you know. There wasn't anything that he did not know. Now, please picture this. Mixed in with the sand and the dust on the floor of the temple would have been the ashes from the altar that would have been carried back and forth. There would have been olive oil from the lampstand. There would have been breadcrumbs from where they had been carried to the table of showbread back and forth. There would have been incense on the ground. All of these speaking of mercy, but these people weren't interested in mercy. But so Jesus gets down and while they're making all these accusations, he's writing on the floor of the temple. They just kept on insisting and kept on insisting. And so then he gives them an unexpected response. What a precious, precious verse. So when they continued asking him, verse seven, he raised himself up and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Did you know that that's one of the most oft quoted verses in the scripture by politicians? It's one of the most oft-quoted scriptures when people are caught in an evil act. Do you know why? Because they think that verse means this. They think, well, who are you to judge me? 
I mean, he that is without sin, let him throw the first stone. So the idea being, well, yeah, you might've caught me doing this or that, but you're just as guilty as I am. That's the point. The point is they use this verse as some sort of self-defense mechanism. It's not a self-defense mechanism. Jesus wasn't even defending himself. He was pointing out the hypocrisy of the ones making the accusation and he was speaking in favor of a woman who was guilty. We think like that sometimes. Our conscience gets a hold of her and gets a hold of us and starts to convince us and convict us of sin or something like that. And then we say, yeah, you know, that's true and everything. But you know, I'm not as bad as that guy or that gal. I, wow, I mean, look what they're doing. I didn't kill anybody, murder anybody, rape anybody, hadn't robbed any banks lately. I'm thinking about it, but I hadn't robbed any banks lately. That kind of, so he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. That's was totally unexpected from them. And he bent down and he wrote something. Maybe he wrote Deuteronomy 22 or Leviticus 20.10 that talked about the man and the woman. They were struck in their heart. Perhaps he wrote out their names and their sins. Perhaps he wrote out how they hatched the plan and the man that had actually committed adultery with her. Whatever he wrote, his words brought truth and conviction to the men because the oldest first, then the youngest dropped the rock walked away because they were just as sinful as this woman. Now, don't assume that we never make judgment. It's just we never judge another for what we're guilty of ourselves. James 2, 12 says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And folks, mercy always triumphs over judgment. So get the picture. Here's Jesus, and they're ready to stone her, and they got him hooked. They think they've got him trapped, tricked. They got him in the corner. He can't get out. You're either going to have to stone her, or you're going to have to let her go. And either way, you're breaking the law. And he says to them, which one of you can throw the first stone because you're innocent? Wow. What conviction. So somebody's going to say, what did Jesus write? I don't know. You say, Pastor, you're preaching a whole sermon about this and you don't know what he wrote? No, I don't know what he wrote. <laughs> I know what the result of what he wrote was. Let me give you some thoughts here. Here's some thoughts. He, I'll tell you what, he wrote that he wanted to save her, not stone her. You know what, sometimes when we hear about this, that, or the other, and I'm as guilty as the next person, we hear what heinous thing somebody has done, first thing we'd like to do is, you know, drop the ax. But that, that's not... Jesus. He didn't want to stone her. He wanted to save her. He said to her, where are thine accusers? No one has stayed to accuse me. And then she hears these incredible words, neither do I condemn you. You know, the sweetest words we could ever hear this morning are no condemnation. Romans chapter, Romans chapter eight and verse number one, what does it say? There is therefore now what? No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, to those who walk according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. So there's no condemnation. It's the sweetest, most wonderful. It didn't say that there's no guilt. How many of you are guilty sinners? Raise your hand. No condemnation. Why? Because Jesus was condemned in our place. Do you know Jesus didn't? Everybody's got this idea. Well, Jesus just came to earth condemning everybody. Nope. John 3, 17, we've already seen it. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus didn't come with a message of condemnation. Jesus came with a message of repentance and forgiveness. He came telling people you can be forgiven for your sin. 
No condemnation. You know what he wrote? He wrote that guilt is a friend and it leads to grace. He didn't say she shouldn't feel guilty. She was guilty. But the guilt can lead to grace. He wrote, conviction is good. It can lead to conversion. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you experiencing some squeeze of conviction in your own heart? Are you feeling it for what you have done? Well, let me tell you this. Don't go find a psychologist who will explain it away and say, well, that guilt that you're feeling is because of the upbringing you had, the parents you had, or maybe it's the society you live in, or that church that you're going to, putting all this guilt on you. You just need to eliminate all of that because guilt is bad. No, 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 folks. We have a conscience and our guilt leads us to grace. Oh, it is so important. We're supposed to understand that the conviction, the conviction and feelings of guilt are the Holy Spirit's way to draw us to God for healing. He wrote, confession is right and it leads to cleansing. So he wrote that he didn't want to stone her, he wanted to save her. And then he wrote that he wanted to change her. He didn't want to chastise her. John 7, 37, we just read this last week. Oh, on the last and great day of the feast, he stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this, he meant the spirit who, he, who those believed in him were later to receive. And so here's what he promised. He said, look, believe in me and the spirit will come in you and you'll be a different person. You're gonna have streams of life coming up inside of you that are gonna flow out to other people. He says, believe in me and there's going to be an interchange. There's going to be a new person move in. The Holy Spirit of God's coming in. Somebody that says to me, you know, I prayed that prayer and I was trying to call on Jesus, but nothing happened. I still don't have any power. I still can't change. I'm still angry, mad, upset, and I, my attitude's still terrible. And it's the same, just like it's always been. And then let's go back to base one. Do you understand that sin is a separator and has kept you from God? Do you understand that you are helpless, hopeless, and condemned to a hell of eternity in hell? And without Jesus, have you truly confessed and said, Jesus, save me? Have you done it? Because when you do, the Holy Spirit comes in and in your heart something changes. I want to tell you this. He wrote this as well. He wrote that he wanted her to repent and not repeat. What? Verse number 11, verse number 10, when he had raised himself up and saw that no one but the woman, uh, saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, preciously, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. There is not a period after neither do I condemn you. There's a semicolon. And then there's a single structure of its own that says, go and sin no more. He wrote that he wanted to repent and not repeat. From time to time, uh, I will share the gospel with someone and they say, well, that all sounds really good. I'd really like to go to heaven. I certainly don't want to go to hell and everything. But listen, I'm going to tell you something. I am who I am. I live the way I do. And I'm just not going to have anybody telling me the lifestyle that I have chosen is wrong. Well, then you're not even ready to repent and be saved. You can't be saved. Because the... God who comes to us to save us from our sins will also put it in our heart to turn away from those sins. Repentance. I've told you many times, I'm going this way in my life, my own ideas, my own thoughts, my own appraisals of life and everything in it. This is what I think. But I hear the gospel. And the God 
The Holy Spirit convinces and convicts me of my sin and tells me that I'm going the wrong direction and the path is leading me to an eternity in hell. And, and all of a sudden, in my mind, there is this total change. There is a change of mind and heart that leads to a change of direction. And I repent. 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 Without that, there is no salvation. Repentance and faith. Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Repent and believe the gospel. There's no other, there's no other gospel. You say, well, is that works? No, it's the evidence of the Holy Spirit has moved into your heart and he's made you a new person because if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. And so that's repentance. And this is what he told her. He said, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. In other words, don't pick up your old life as it was before and just keep on living like that. You can't live that way anymore because you belong to me now. And the Holy Spirit lives in you now. And you have a new destiny. You're a new person. You got a new presence. You got a new power. You belong to somebody else. And so live differently. Let the Holy Spirit empower you. Go, leave your life of sin. With the command comes the enabling. He said to the man, this is the illustrations all the way through this book. In the, in, to the man who was on the mat, paralyzed for 38 years, the command to get up was also the enablement to do it. And he got up. Peter, walk on that water, come to me. And he was able to because he told him to. And he said to the man who came with the son who was sick and dying, his son was back at home and he said, oh, please come and heal my son. And he says, your son will live. And he turned around and headed home and he believed and God did just what he says. The enablement comes with the command. I don't condemn you, now go and sin no more. And folks, it doesn't mean, now watch now, going this direction in life, I sin as a habit. This is my, this is my habitual way. And I'm going to go back and go this way and I'm going to sin because he that says he has no sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. But it's not the direction of my life and I'm not happy when I sin. I'm going a different direction. Oh, he said to her, no condemnation. You know, I'm going to finish with this. The only one there that could rightfully condemn her, the woman, didn't want to. And the, only, and the people who were there who wanted to condemn her didn't have the right to. Because Jesus was sinlessly innocent and he could have condemned, but he chose not to. He rather chose to die for her. But the ones who wanted to destroy her had no right to and their own sin was revealed. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed. So the declaration is this. Jesus has removed the condemnation. I can just say on the authority of Scripture to everyone who has come in faith to Jesus believing, I'm here to tell you this morning that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. The application we should not try to renew the condemnation, not on ourselves and not on others. What? Don't let the devil talk you into having to reconfess sins already confessed. Don't let the devil reconvict you and tell you you're worthless. You're not worth anything. Why? Nobody like you that's done the things you could do could ever be the child of God or be any use to him. If you have sincerely confessed and forsaken the sin, don't let the devil sit on your, sit on your shoulder and reconvict you and reconvince you of those sins. Just when you start hearing that voice, just go to the Lord and say, Lord, I've already talked to you about this. 
Now then it even gets more interesting, and let's not be guilty of holding past sins against other people. Well, you know, I can't have too much confidence in you because I know where you came from. I know what you did. I know what your former life was. I just, I don't know about you. Are we supposed to condemn people that God has declared no condemnation on? Nope. It is so very, very important. And then there's evidence. Go, because you can live differently now. Now, folks, I I, want to make an application totally unexpected as I close. Here's the unexpected application. How many of you believe that this wonderful news of no condemnation is something that your family and friends really need to hear? How many of you believe that's true? How many of you believe that people in Japan need to hear about the fact there's no condemnation for those? How many North Africa, how many South, how many the Philippines, how many the people at work, how many the people across the street, the neighbors, this message of no condemnation is, it's the gospel. There is no condemnation to anyone. Now, is everybody condemned already? Yes or no? Yes, but for those who come to faith in Jesus and they hear the good news of the gospel and they put their faith in him, there is no condemnation. Folks, it's a message we've got to be talking about. It's a message that needs to be on our lips. We need to tell people, talk about it. And then let me go a little further. Some of you are here and it's been niggling in your mind. You know, wow, I don't know what God wants to do with me, but maybe, you know, maybe he wants me to go far away and carry this message. Maybe, maybe the people of Africa, the people of Asia, the people of China, the people of South America, the people of the Central America, maybe the people, maybe the people in Turkey and Northern Syria where they're just dying right now as we sit here in this room today because of what has happened in the earthquake. Maybe they need more people to come and talk to them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have a question. What has happened to the great missionary call? What has happened to where God lays his hand on people, young people, young men, young women, young families, and lays his hand on them and says, I'm calling you. I've got a special assignment for you. I've got something I want you to do. What happened to that? Is God just not doing that anymore? Is the good news worth telling, yes or no? Have we got a command to go to the end of the earth, yes or no? Oh, are we listening to the call? Are we listening? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Father, thank you for these two words. No condemnation. I'm so thankful. We're so thankful that though guilty and condemned, you have announced no condemnation because of the blood of Jesus and because we've put our faith in you, not condemned. We give you honor and praise today because of that. Now, Lord, there are people here of, in all different spots, in all kinds of circumstances. And Lord, I don't know what's in everybody's heart today. Maybe there's somebody here that's never come to Jesus for salvation in the first place. Well, they don't have to be condemned if they'll come in faith believing Maybe there are believers here today that practice condemnation of their family, of their friends. They keep holding things over people. Help us, Lord, not to be condemning because we've been forgiven. And then, Lord, there are many here today that, well, we're just too 
zip-lipped about this thing. We think that professionals are going to carry the gospel to our neighbors and to our friends and to our family. Well, no, no, it's... It's, it's the members, it's the attenders, it's regular everyday Christians, Lord, that can carry the good news of no condemnation. Help us to become bold. Help us to overcome timidity and fear. Help us to overcome it. Help us to not be afraid. Lord, help us to talk to people about this wonderful news of no condemnation. Lord, if there's anybody that is, is sensing that you may want to do something different and special with them. You may want them not to just, quote, unquote, follow the American dream and live it in and settle down and just enjoy, but rather, Lord, you've got, you've got a great adventure for them in some faraway place where they can carry the gospel to different cultures and languages and people groups. Draw them to yourself so that we can go with this message of no condemnation. Thank you for the cross. Help us now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.